Chapter Thirteen of the Flint Heart by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Grand Septuor. About six weeks after Mister Billy Jago got well, Charles, having a holiday, determined to visit the Pixies' Holt. He hardly expected to see a fairy again, but he wanted to thank De Quincey and tell him that the Zagabog's advice had worked very splendidly indeed. So he wrote a letter addressed to Mr. De Quincey, Esquire, Poet, and started off to fling it into the Holt. Then, thought Charles, somebody will be sure to find it and give it to him. It was a nice letter, well expressed and well spelt, for Charles had taken great trouble with it, but De Quincey never received it and this is the reason why. Charles reached the Holt on a day in August, and the bluebells were, of course, all dead and gone, but some good foxgloves had taken their place, and the first thing that Charles saw when he arrived was De Quincey himself, trying on foxgloves. Most men fairies wear foxglove hats in the summer season of the year. In fact, it is not considered very good form to wear anything else from the 20th of June until the 31st of August. So De Quincey, who had just discarded his last hat, was trying on new ones, and he had found a foxglove that fitted perfectly as Charles arrived. "'I was bringing a letter for you,' said the visitor. "'You ought to have brought it sooner,' answered De Quincey. However, better late than never is a good saying, and I am the last person to expect gratitude from a human boy. If you should ever be invited to dinner again, remember to call within the week." "'I will, and I'm sorry I didn't know better,' answered Charles humbly. "'You can't say more,' replied the fairy, and it is rather remarkable to hear you say as much. Many people are angry when they make a mistake, but very few people have the sense also to be sorry." "'I hope the music of English prose is going on pretty well,' said Charles. Oh, don't talk about it, answered De Quincey. The ancient fires, of course, still burn, and they are immortal. But there is nothing new, no fresh fuel, if you understand me. Charles didn't, so he changed the subject. My father has quite recovered. I am sure you would be glad to hear that, he said. The king wants to see you, said De Quincey, showing no interest in Billy Jago. The king? exclaimed Charles. Yes, answered De Quincey. The story is a long one, but such is my command of language that I shall be able to unfold it in three sentences. Observe the construction of them, and the harmony with which each will flow out of the last. Oh, I will, if I'm clever enough, answered Charles. In a word, when you flung away the flint heart, it finally reposed upon a bank of wild asphodel beyond the river. Passing that way by night, the Jackie Toad, known as Marsh Galloper, chanced upon the charm, and with that low cunning denied to no member of his species, perceived its terrific qualities, possessed himself of the Flint Heart, and by its aid speedily lifted himself to a position of intolerable importance. He has marshalled the dusky legions of the Jackie Toads in revolt against Fairyland proper. He has openly defied and flouted the reigning house. 
His trumpets have sounded for revolution, and his banners bear these shameful words, Down with the Veto! Even the royal Jackie Toad body card is on the point of rebellion. I'm very sorry there is any trouble, said Charles. Already we have fought three pitched battles, and it is idle to pretend that we got the best of them, continued De Quincey. Marsh Galloper was practically unknown until a month ago, but now, with the Flintheart and his friend Fire Drake to help him, the wretched Hobgoblin is proving a very ugly customer indeed. Of course, something must be done. We can't have a long civil war. So the king wants to see you. His words were, send for Charles. I'm afraid that I shan't be any use, said Charles. Probably not, answered De Quincey, but as the Zagabog used to say, everything comes in useful once in a hundred years, and this may be your chance. He has, of course, gone on his majestic rounds, I mean the great Zagabog, but after the third battle, and when about six of our leading generals had been recalled in disgrace, the king sent a message by wireless telegraphy to the Zagabog, who is now in Timbuktu, and the Zagabog has replied to the message, and the king is very anxious that you shall hear what the Zagabog said. Well, I shall be most interested, answered Charles. Come on, then, replied De Quincey and he touched the right boot of Charles, repeated the magic word, and reduced the visitor to fairy size in a twinkling. Then Charles remarked that all the flowers were arranged in rows and danced on spider's threads in a way quite invisible to a full-sized human being. "'Good gracious! You're having a flower show!' said Charles. De Quincey showed impatience. "'On the contrary, it's washing day,' he answered. Then he pointed to some tiny but exquisite petticoats that glittered and flashed on a gossamer, and looked like liquid silver fluttering there. Her Majesty, explained De Quincey, they are made from the petals of the rarest flower on Dartmoor. I refer to the Mount Ida whortleberry, which grows on fir tor. Now, come on. In the entrance hall, Charles stopped again entranced by the most lovely music that he had ever heard. And this time, when he asked what it might mean, De Quincey showed less impatience. It is the private royal orchestra rehearsing, he said. They are about to run through a little thing of mine. It is to be sung at court tomorrow night. And the concert will conclude with the Grand Septuor Beethoven, Opus 20 in E-flat. You know it, of course. I'm afraid I don't, answered Charles, but I should like to hear a song of yours, I'm sure, if it's half as beautiful as a Zagabog song. It is more beautiful, but not so learned, answered the poet. The musicians, who had apparently been waiting for him, stopped playing. Then, after a few words from De Quincey, they picked up their instruments again and prepared to start. A tiny lady songstress took her place before them, and with a wee sheet of music in her hand, and after a few bars had been played, she sang this song. Where bluebells are tinkling a fairy tune in the ear of sleeping night, where dewdrops laugh at the man in the moon and shiver with stolen light, 
When the busy old world that works by day Slumbers softly in dreamland far away, Tis then that we dance and sing and play, Under the moon, the golden moon, Where bluebells are tinkling, 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 Bluebells are tinkling a fairy tune. Where will-o'-the-wisp glides over the fen To gaze upon fairy charms, where shadowy mists from the haunted glen are waving their silver arms, where winds of the night from a woodland bring the scent of the forest on silent wing. Tis there that we dance and play and sing. There, said De Quincey, what do you think of that? It's lovely, answered Charles. It's far and away the most beautiful song I've ever heard, though, of course, I've not heard many. Never qualify praise, replied the poet. It's the best thing you ever heard. No need to say more. Do let me hear it over again, begged Charles. But De Quincey refused to allow this. Encores never take place at a rehearsal, he said. Now you can listen to a part of the Grand Septuar. Then we must go to the king. All the musicians went off, save Seven and the conductor. Their instruments were very beautiful and wonderful. For instance, the big fiddle was the empty shell of a shard-borne beetle strung with spider's web, and the first violin consisted of an empty beech-nut, which made the loveliest music for a fairy's ear. The biggest of the wind instruments was fashioned out of a small snail-shell, but whether it was a clarinet or orbo or what, I am not musician enough to say. Charles listened to the wonderful Grand Septuar, and since the rendering was very fine, and quite out of the common in every way, even De Quincey made no haste to go forward to court. Of course, I don't understand it, admitted Charles, but it's beautiful. Even I know that much. I have always regretted, replied De Quincey, that we have had no fairy composer who could be considered in the class of Beethoven. Musicians we can boast in plenty, but none, between ourselves, quite equal to setting my words to music, so I always have to do it myself. Then he went over to the conductor of the orchestra. A pleasing and sound performance, he said, perhaps a little more fire in the allegro, and a thought more delicacy in the andante are indicated, and the cello appears to be slightly rheumatic in his bow elbow. But these are trifles. The Grand Septuor may be considered ready for the court concert. The conductor thanked De Quincey and said that he was proud to have pleased him. Then Charles and his guide hastened off to court. End of chapter 13